Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Aminder. I'm Ellen Kosh, and I'm here to bring you part two of our series on cognitive and clinical indicators of Alzheimer's disease. Make sure to check out part one as well, either before or after you listen today, hosted by Nyla, which was dropped yesterday. Today, I'll be telling you about many different studies, including some studies that validate cognitive screening tools for AD, some that look at things like motor and gait deficits, and even body temperature to diagnose this disease, and some brand new deep learning tools to better differentiate AD from normal cognition. Stay tuned! Welcome to Aminder, a podcast where we summarize the latest publications on Alzheimer's disease for you so you can spend more time doing awesome research. For every month, you'll find a series of episodes by theme, and each comes with a bibliography. Whether you're in the lab, on the bus, or cooking your meal, we hope you find this podcast useful and accessible. So Nyla mentioned in part one that she was recording while it was pouring rain in Montreal. Well, I'm happy to tell you that it's a beautiful, hot, and sunny April day here in Vancouver, BC, as I'm recording this episode. So you won't hear any rain, but you might hear barking because we just got a new puppy here at my house. So you can imagine my life has been pretty hectic lately, even more so than usual. Getting back to the point, today's episode covers papers that were published in February of this year. I have 15 papers to get through today, and I just want to remind you that this and every episode of Aminder is accompanied by a numbered bibliography where you can find all the papers covered. Also, we're getting to the end of our February series. April 20th is the last episode that we'll be publishing for February papers, and then after a short and much-deserved break for our team, we'll be starting on covering papers published in March, beginning the week of May 2nd. And by the way, any topics that weren't covered in actual episodes will still be available as bibliographies. So this includes topics such as fluid biomarkers, imaging structural changes in the brain in Alzheimer's disease, tau protein pathology, and more that we weren't able to make into actual episodes this time around. You can still find a list of all the papers published in a given month on these topics. Give us a little bit of time to get all of the bibliographies uploaded, but you will soon be able to find all of those bibliographies in the link in the show notes. Last thing before we begin, the bibliographies are a really important aspect of the show, as they're a way for you to check out any papers you hear about in the episodes in more detail. I'm just summarizing the abstracts for you today, and I haven't looked into the papers in any more detail than that to scrutinize their methodology or their results. So please keep that in mind today and check the original papers before taking anything said today as fact. Okay, let's get started. First up, seven papers that looked at cognitive assessments and screening tools for Alzheimer's disease. Paper one was published in the Archives of Clinical Neuropsychology by first author Passler and last author Wadley. The title is The Relationship of Cognitive Change Over Time to the Self-Reported Ascertained Dementia 8-Item Questionnaire in a General Population. In this study, the authors looked at the relationship between long-term cognitive function and self-reported dementia status using the Ascertained Dementia 8-Item Questionnaire in over 14,000 participants. They administered this questionnaire 10 years after enrollment in the study, and if at least two symptoms were present, then a positive dementia status was indicated. 
Cognitive impairment was defined using the six-item screener score, and cognitive decline was defined using items from the Montreal Cognitive Assessment, Animal Fluency, Word List Learning, and Word List Delayed Recall. The sensitivity of the questionnaire was 45.2%, and the specificity was 78%. The best predictors of self-reported dementia were cognitive impairment and depression risk. So the authors concluded that the ascertained dementia eight-item questionnaire is a useful self-report measure to screen for dementia, but they warn that it should not be used to clinically diagnose dementia. The next paper looks at another dementia scale, a new instrument developed in Japan. Paper number two is Concurrent Validity of the ABC Dementia Scale with Other Standard Scales, a new comprehensive instrument for assessing dementia in Japan. This one comes from first author Shimoda and last author Sato, and it's published in Dementia and Geriatric Cognitive Disorders. The ABC Dementia Scale is a tool designed to assess activities of daily living, or otherwise called ADLs, and to also assess behavioral and psychological symptoms, or BPSD, and cognitive function, all in one. So the goal is to assess all three of these in one. In this study, the authors wanted to validate the ABC Dementia Scale for different dementia types and severities. 102 patients were included and had either AD-type dementia, vascular dementia, mixed dementia, dementia with Lewy bodies, R-gyrophilic grain dementia, or mild cognitive impairment. The scale assessed three domains. The first domain is the assessment of daily living, which correlated with a disability assessment for dementia. The second domain is behavioral and psychological symptoms of dementia, and they correlated this with the neuropsychiatric inventory. And the last domain is cognitive function, which correlated with the mini mental state exam. The total score was correlated with the clinical dementia rating scale. For the Alzheimer's and the vascular dementia patients, there were moderate to high correlations with moderate and severe dementia. So the authors showed that the ABC dementia scale could be used to assess moderate to severe Alzheimer's and vascular dementia, but the findings were not as clear for the other dementias studied. Next up, we have paper number three. This one is published by first author Olson, last author Benedict, and it's published in the very aptly named journal Assessment. This paper is called Preliminary Validation of the Global Neuropsychological Assessment in Alzheimer's Disease and Healthy Volunteers. The Global Neuropsychological Assessment is a cognitive battery test which includes five subtests, story memory, digit span, perceptual comparison, and animal naming. In this study, the authors assessed the global neuropsychological assessment in 105 adults with either probable AD, amnestic mild cognitive impairment, or no cognitive impairment. The participants were tested in baseline performance, test-retest reliability, and these were compared to other conventional tests. The authors found that healthy adults outperformed patients in all five subtests. Test-retest intraclass correlation coefficients were significant for all subtests. So next I'll tell you um, how different scales and different tests correlated with each other. So story memory had the strongest correlation with the Weschler memory scale revised logical memory. The digit span test correlated with the Weschler adult intelligence scale third edition digit span. Perceptual comparison had the best correlation with the trail-making test, 
and animal naming correlated with supermarket item naming. So the authors concluded that the global neuropsychological assessment shows good test-retest validity and diagnostic validity for dementia and mild cognitive impairment. Now we move on to a paper looking at the functional activities questionnaire. This one is also published in the journal Assessment, this time by first author Gonzalez and last author Sobel. Paper number four is called Comprehensive Evaluation of the Functional Activities Questionnaire, FAQ, and its Reliability and Validity. The Functional Activities Questionnaire is a measure of activities of daily living using collateral information. And collateral information is information that's gathered from the patient's contacts. The authors here looked at data from over 27,000 individuals in the National Alzheimer's Coordinating Center's database who had done the Functional Activities Questionnaire. Reliability, correlation with neurocognitive measures, and classification accuracy were all assessed. The questionnaire showed reliability coefficients of 0.52 to 0.95. However, they note that when restricted to one particular diagnostic group, such as normal cognition, these coefficients were reduced. The questionnaire also showed correlations with neurocognitive measures from negative 0.3 to negative 0.59 and classification accuracy of 0.81 to 0.99. So overall, the authors concluded that the functional activities questionnaire is a reliable and valid measure of activities of daily living, especially for mild levels of functional decline. Paper number five looks at validation of a Chinese version of a cognitive exam. This one is called Validation of the Chinese Version of Addenbrook's Cognitive Exam 3 for Detecting Mild Cognitive Impairment. This one was published in Aging Mental Health by first author Pan and last author Guo. In this study, the authors aim to determine the reliability and validity of the Chinese version of Addenbrook's Cognitive Exam 3, which I will just be referring to as ACE, for mild cognitive impairment, and to determine optimal cutoff scores for differences in age and education. I'll be referring to mild cognitive impairment as MCI for the rest of the episode. So 431 cognitively normal controls and 285 individuals with MCI completed the ACE, the mini mental state exam, and the Chinese version of the Montreal Cognitive Assessment Basic, or I'll be referring to this as MOCA-BC. And they also completed other standardized neuropsychological tests. The authors found that the ACE had good reliability with a Cronbach's coefficient of 0.8, interclass correlation coefficient of 0.95, and test-retest reliability of 0.93. This test had a better ability than the mini-mental state exam in detecting MCI. ACE and MOCA-BC were both equally good at detecting MCI. And different optimal cutoff scores were determined based on the years of education. Find the paper in our bibliography if you want to learn more about that. Altogether, the authors suggest that the ACE is a reliable and valid screening tool for detecting MCI. The next paper looks at a digital memory test called MemTrax. Paper number six is called Validity of the MemTrax Memory Test Compared to the Montreal Cognitive Assessment in the Detection of Mild Cognitive Impairment and Dementia Due to Alzheimer's Disease in a Chinese Cohort. This paper is published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease. The first author is Liu, and the last author is Zhang. So these authors assess the clinical utility of the two-and-a-half-minute-long MemTrax Memory Test for detecting cognitive impairment in a Chinese cohort. 
So this is a digital cognitive screening instrument that the authors describe as reliable, accessible, engaging, and affordable. It has it all. 50 cognitively normal, 50 MCI, and 50 AD patients did both the MEMTRAX test and the MOCA, which, reminder, is the Montreal Cognitive Assessment. The percentage of correct responses, the mean response time, and the composite scores of the MEMTRAX were compared with MOCA. The percentage of correct responses and composite scores and MOCA scores were significantly lower in MCI versus cognitively normal and in AD versus MCI. To distinguish MCI from cognitively normal participants, a correct response cutoff of 81% had 72% sensitivity with an area under the curve of 0.839. On the other hand, a MOCA score of 23 had just 54% sensitivity and 86% specificity, and the area under under the curve for this is 0.74. To distinguish AD from MCI, a composite score of 43 had 70% sensitivity and 82% specificity with an area under the curve of 0.799. And in contrast, the MOCA score of 20 had lower sensitivity and specificity with an area under the curve of 0.76. Okay, I know that was a lot of numbers, but overall the authors suggest that the MEMTRAX can detect clinically diagnosed MCI and AD better than the MOCA. Considering this is a convenient and affordable digital tool, according to the authors, this could be great news for getting more people access to these tests. All right, I feel like I've never said the word assess more in my life. The last paper in this cognitive assessment section is looking at a test for Arabic speakers. So this one, paper number seven, is called Adaptation and Validation of the Mini Addenbrooks Cognitive Examination in Dementia in Arabic speakers in Egypt. First author is Kwasem, and the last author is Abdel Aziz, and this one is published in the journal Dementia and Geriatric Cognitive Disorders. The Mini Addenbrooks Cognitive Examination, or MACE, which is what, how I'll refer to it, is a cognitive test that assesses five subdomains of cognition, attention, memory, verbal fluency, visuospatial abilities, and memory recall. This is a quick tool for testing cognition, as it only takes five minutes to do. The authors adapted the MACE to Arabic speakers in Egypt and validated it in dementia patients to provide cutoff scores. 37 patients with AD, vascular and Lewy body dementia, and 43 controls took the MACE. The authors found a significant difference between dementia patients and controls on the total score and subscores in all domains of the test. Performance on the MACE correlated with both the Mini Mental State Exam and the Addenbrooks Cognitive Examination 3. Using the ROC curve, the optimal cutoff score for dementia on the MACE total score was 18, with over 90% sensitivity, specificity, and accuracy. Overall, the authors validated the MACE as a screening tool for dementia in Arabic speakers. All right, that section was heavy on the validation and adaptation and reliability, sensitivity, (laughs) and all of that stuff. We're going to take a little break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about a very different topic of muscular and motor deficits in Alzheimer's disease. Hey, listeners, I'm here to let you know A-Minder is recruiting. If you're interested in joining us, shoot us an email at aminderpodcast at gmail.com. 
You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Enjoy the rest of the episode. Okay, let's talk about muscular and motor deficits that can be used to diagnose AD or MCI. First up, a paper looking at grip strength and the risk for dementia. Paper number eight of the episode, published in Frontiers in Aging Neuroscience, is titled Grip Strength and the Risk of Cognitive Decline in Dementia, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis of Longitudinal Cohort Studies. This comes from first author Q and last author Wang. Here, as the title implies, the authors aim to determine the relationship between baseline grip strength and the risk of cognitive impairment. And this is a topic that has been studied independently, but the results have been controversial. For the interest of the podcast, we'll focus on their results from the meta-analysis component of the paper. Articles were searched up to March 23, 2020, for associations between baseline grip strength and the onset of cognitive impairment. They used the databases PubMed, Embase, Cochrane, and Web of Science. Fifteen studies were included, and after sensitivity analyses, poorer grip strength was associated with a greater risk of cognitive decline and dementia. Subgroup analysis showed that people with poorer grip strength also had a greater risk of AD and non-AD dementia. The authors conclude that poor grip strength is associated with a higher risk of cognitive decline. Now we move on to a paper looking at oculomotor behaviors. Published again in Frontiers in Aging Neuroscience, first author is Lage, last author is Sanchez Juan. It's called Distinctive Oculomotor Behaviors in Alzheimer's Disease and Frontotemporal Dementia. These authors explore whether eye movements can be used to classify AD and frontotemporal dementia. They had 93 Alzheimer's behavioral variant, behavioral variant of frontotemporal dementia, semantic variant of primary progressive aphasia, and cognitively normal adults that underwent an eye-tracking evaluation. They used 18F FDG PET imaging to look at oculomotor correlates of neuropsychology and brain metabolism. And machine learning classification algorithms were used to differentiate participant groups. The results showed that 80 patients were the most impaired in all these tests and had abnormal visually guided saccades, which in theory corresponds to posterior brain regions. The frontotemporal dementia patients showed deficits in anti-saccade and memory saccade tests, which are controlled by the frontal lobe. And primary progressive aphasia patients perform similar to controls in most parameters. The classification algorithms showed that, that there was an area under the curve of 97.5% for differentiating AD from controls, 96.7% for behavior variant frontotemporal dementia versus controls, and 92.5% for AD versus behavioral variant frontotemporal dementia. The authors conclude that patients of all three of these disorders have unique eye movement changes that reflect changes to neuropathology, and that these can be evaluated with machine learning tools. Wow, who knew that something as simple as eye movements could differentiate between different types of dementia? Next, we continue looking at motor behaviors, but this time, the focus is on gait. This next paper, the 10th paper of the episode, is published by first author Pierucini Faria and last author Montero Odasso in Alzheimer's Dementia. The title is Gait Variability Across Neurodegenerative and Cognitive Disorders. Results from the Canadian Consortium of Neurodegeneration and Aging, CCNA, and the Gait and Brain Study. 
You may know that gait impairment is common in neurodegenerative disorders. Specifically, gait variability is associated with neurodegeneration and cognitive impairment. The authors describe gait variability as stride-to-stride fluctuations in distance and time. They assessed the gait and cognitive performance of 500 older adults with Alzheimer's, subjective cognitive impairment, Parkinson's, mild cognitive impairment, and a variety of other dementia and cognitive impairment groups. Results of their factor analysis grouped 11 gait parameters and four gait domains, which were rhythm, pace, variability, and postural control. They found that only high gait variability was associated with lower cognitive performance, and that this accurately distinguished AD from the other conditions. So, the authors suggest that high gait variability can be a marker of cognitive cortical dysfunction and can be used to detect AD. Paper number 11 is also on the topic of gait. The title of this article is Continuous Gait Monitoring Discriminates Community-Dwelling Mild Alzheimer's Disease from Cognitively Normal Controls. This is published in Alzheimer's Dementia by first author Varma and last author Watts. In this study, the authors test the use of continuous gait measurement within a community setting to identify early AD. 38 mild AD and 48 cognitively normal control participants each wore an accelerometer for seven days to assess gait. They used penalized logistic regression with repeated five-fold cross-validation followed by adjusted logistic regression to identify gait metrics that best predicted mild AD. The results showed that variability in step velocity and cadence were the best predictors of mild AD and that these had a relationship to some of the cognitive domains that are affected early on. Based on these findings, the authors suggested that continuous gait monitoring could be used to identify people that are at risk of developing dementia. Our next section just has one paper on a topic that I haven't heard of before, using body temperature to detect Alzheimer's disease. Wow, the things I learned from hosting this show. Paper 12 of the episode is titled, Body temperature is associated with cognitive performance in older adults with and without mild cognitive impairment, a cross-sectional analysis. This is published in Frontiers in Aging and Neuroscience by first author Eggenberger and last author Anaheim. So fun fact, our core body temperature decreases slightly as we age, with averages around 36.3 degrees orally. Individuals with AD may have higher than normal core body temperatures for their age. The authors in this study examined the relationship between body temperature and cognition in older adults. They had 54 healthy and 26 MCI patients, which received skin temperature measurements and neuropsychological tests. They also had a subgroup of 9 healthy and 6 MCI participants that had skin and core body temperatures taken continuously for 12 hours. The results of their analysis that was controlled for age showed that lower median body temperature and higher peak-to-peak body temperature amplitude was associated with better general cognitive performance. They also report relationships between skin temperature measurements and some specific cognitive domains, which you can read more about in the full paper. Cognitively healthy participants had lower median body temperature and higher peak-to-peak body temperature amplitude compared to the MCI participants. The author suggests that body temperature could be a biomarker for early cognitive decline and can be considered for continuous monitoring of cognitive health in older adults. 
The last section today is on various new deep learning tools that are being developed to diagnose AD. This includes two papers that use spontaneous speech and one paper that uses the results of cognitive tests. Paper number 13 of the episode is Acoustic and Language-Based Deep Learning Approaches for Alzheimer's Dementia Detection from Spontaneous Speech. It comes from just two authors, Mahajan and Baths, and it's published in Frontiers in Aging and Neuroscience. Language difficulties are a major problem in dementia, yet these authors believe that current diagnostic tools don't address language difficulties robustly enough. They argue that evaluating spontaneous speech is beneficial because it's less time-consuming, can be done at home, which is great in times of COVID, and is inexpensive compared to other tests. They built on previous language input-based recurrent neural networks, by creating a deep learning strategy that can classify Alzheimer's disease from spontaneous speech, and it combines the acoustic features of speech into a common vector. Their deep learning-based method uses a speech GRU, or gated recurrent unit, which combines the acoustic features from speech segments while maintaining the temporal structure across segments. Without getting into too much more of the technical details, This work sheds light on some of the discrepancies in performance of speech analysis models on different AD datasets, such as the Address and the Dementia Bank, and it also shows that their approach, using the speech GRU, improves accuracy in the Address dataset by 2% compared to the acoustic baseline, which is another approach. The authors highlight the utility of the speech GRU in classifying AD using spontaneous speech. This abstract was heavy on the machine learning details, which I only barely touched on here. So if this is your forte, please check out the bibliography to find the original paper. Our next paper, paper number 14, is also by two authors, Shalasta and Wolk. And it also looks at the data from the address dataset, but using a different automated machine learning approach. This one is published in Frontiers in Psychology and is titled towards computer-based automated screening of dementia through spontaneous speech. So in line with the last paper, these authors also compared their computer-based automated screening tool to classify Alzheimer's disease using spontaneous speech from the address dataset. And they compared this to previous models. To detect signs of dementia and spontaneous speech, they use VGG-ish, or VGGISH, which is a deep, pre-trained TensorFlow model as an audio feature extractor, and they also use the Scikit-Learn machine learning classifier. The classifiers used were 59.1% accurate, which was 3% higher than the best-performing baseline models trained in acoustic feature recognition, according to the authors. They also tested what's called a new PyTorch raw waveform-based convolutional neural network model uh, called DEMCNN, And this one was 63.6% accurate, which is 7% better than the best performing baseline model. Overall, the author suggests that both of these models that they tested are superior spontaneous speech screening tools for dementia compared to the previous available models. I'd be interested to hear how these two models compare to the one in the previous paper. We've reached the last paper of the episode. Paper number 15, again, is published by two authors. Nagaraj and Duong, and it's in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease. The title is Deep Learning and Risk Score Classification of Mild Cognitive Impairment and Alzheimer's Disease. 
As you probably know, and can tell by everything that's been covered in this episode so far, a wide array of tests are available to classify MCI and AD. But ideally, the fewer variables needed to make an accurate classification, the better. So these authors developed a deep learning algorithm and a simplified risk stratification score to identify a few neurocognitive tests that can accurately classify early and late MCI, AD, and cognitively normal people. Using over 100 participant variables, including performance on cognitive tests, demographics, genetics, and biomarkers, a neural network algorithm was trained on the dataset and the area under the curve was calculated. So the top classifiers, which I'll list now, were consistently the clinical dementia rating scale sum of boxes, the delayed total recall, the modified preclinical Alzheimer cognitive composite with the TRAILS test, the modified preclinical Alzheimer cognitive composite with the digit test, and the mini mental state examination. The best classification model had an area under the curve of 0.984, with the simplified risk stratification score having an area under the curve of 0.963. The authors conclude that their deep learning algorithm and simplified risk score were able to accurately classify different types of cognitive decline using just a few neurocognitive tests. And that's it! Remember to check out part one if you haven't already to hear more on these topics from February 2021. Thank you so much for listening to Aminder. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and our new YouTube channel as well. If you think this podcast is helpful to you, please tell your friends, coworkers, classmates, and anyone else you think would benefit from the show. The goal of Aminder is to be useful and accessible to researchers as a way to keep them up on the literature. So we really hope to spread the word about our podcast to more listeners around the world. If you're interested in getting involved with Aminder, we're still recruiting. You can send your CV to aminderpodcasts at gmail.com and tell us what you're interested in doing with the team. I'd like to thank the amazing team of volunteers for all their hard work on Aminder. This includes the sorting team for dividing all the abstracts from the month into topics for bite-sized episodes. Thank you to Maria for helping to write the summaries that you heard today. To Anusha for reviewing my editing to Satish for creating the bibliography, and to Sarah, who also co-manages Aminder with me, for making the word cloud. The music you heard throughout the episode was created by our editing manager and Aminder host, Anusha. You can find more of Anusha's music on her SoundCloud under Anusha Kamesh, or on YouTube under AK Music. And with that, again, I hope you found this podcast useful and accessible. I'll talk to you again soon, specifically in May, when our March series gets started. But in the meantime, check out all of our other episodes. We have a lot that you can catch up on if you haven't already. Have a great day, and I hope that you're back to listen again soon. Goodbye.